Hi there, I'm Dan Jones. Welcome to the podcast. I'm an oceanographer working at the British Antarctic Survey in Cambridge, UK. And on this podcast, I have long informal conversations with people whose work intersects with climate in some way. So let's get right to it. How do you handle uncertainty? How do you handle rejection? How do you handle critical feedback, which can sometimes feel very personal? How do you develop a resilient mind? How do you develop a resilient set of emotions? Or maybe to put it more simply, how do you develop the quality of being resilient? That's a question that's relevant for everybody. So of course, that's a question that's relevant for scientists and researchers as well. The scientist that I'm going to talk to over the next two episodes, this is a two-parter, the first time we've done that, has spent a lot of time grappling with this question in a serious and deep way. His name, which you'll know from clicking on the episode, is Jonathan Lilly. Jonathan is an oceanographer, and he describes himself on his Twitter bio as an artist in a scientist's body. I invited Jonathan onto the podcast in part because of this really interesting session that he led at the AGU Ocean Sciences meeting back in February. He led it along with Stephen Griffith. The title of the session was uh, Meditation for Scientists, which I found interesting. A lot of other scientists also found it interesting based on the attendance. The, the room was pretty full. We had uh, many, many people in there, about 200 from what I understand. And during this session, Steve Griffiths and Jonathan Lilly both shared their personal experience with meditation, their history with it, their personal practices. They gave us a lot of potential resources to look at. And then the best part was they led us through an actual meditation session. That's definitely a pretty interesting, different thing to be doing in the middle of a scientific conference, scientific conference. but it was great. It was really unique and calming and focusing, grounding. And it was a really just beautiful experience. So I'm really happy that they decided to bring that to the community and to share that with the oceanographers who were in that room. I invited Jonathan to appear on the podcast and he graciously accepted. We uh, had a little bit of a preliminary chat offline, which we refer to in a couple of places. And, oh gosh, I have to tell you, this was one of my favorite podcast conversations that I've ever had. This is it was really valuable for me, really rewarding, and I, I hope that you all enjoy it as well. We had such a in-depth conversation, and we talked for so long that I've decided to split this episode up into two parts, and it makes sense. There's a natural break in our conversation. So this part that I'm bringing you now, that you're listening to now, this part is mainly about meditation and Jonathan's uh, practice, Jonathan's meditative practice, and the larger set of overarching practices that include meditation. So if you want to hear about his practice, which includes meditation and some other techniques, some other recipes, some other tools for building resilience, stick around. This is the episode for you. The second part of this conversation is really more like a traditional climate scientists episode where we talk about Jonathan's scientific work and we talk about his pathway into science. We do circle back around to some of his practice because of course it's all one thing. It's all one set of, it's all his life, right? But again, part one, pretty much all meditation for scientists, the practice, his personal practice, Jonathan's practice. Part two, 
more traditional climate scientists episode, including his science and Jonathan's pathway into science. So there you go. That's how those two parts are going to lay out. For some context for this meditation episode, I'd like to read you a quote from Jonathan's blog post on his website, jmlilly.net. This is from February 2020, you know, earlier. I'll just read you a couple of paragraphs from here. He uh, used some of this same material to motivate the meditation session at AGU Ocean Sciences. Uh, I'm just going to jump into it. Meditation is a highly refined technique of mental training. Its most widespread form has been stable for two and a half thousand years, with roots going back perhaps five thousand years. It is as different from scientific problem solving as weightlifting is from stretching. Yet, it is also, in a way, completely scientific, with particular effort leading predictably and reproducibly to particular results. As a motivation for developing alternate types of mental skills, consider this quote from the great oceanographer Henry Stommel. You know Stommel. He describes how, after accumulating enough basic information on a problem, looking at it from as many ways as possible, he reaches a point where he finds a major shift in his approach is necessary. Here's the quote from Stommel. When my mind is filled with this hodgepodge to the point where I cannot grasp it all at once, then I do a very curious thing. I try to defocus my mind, to deliberately lose it all, to melt the fragments of ideas into something akin to a hallucinatory vision. It takes a lot of nervous energy and sounds a bit mystical, but I can explain it in no other way. Jonathan would argue that Stommel's mysterious defocusing of the mind and meditation practice share a common goal, namely to loosen the attachments of the mind to its content of previously conceived ideas. A benefit for us as scientists is that this mental relaxation can create a space for new ideas to emerge. Good stuff. If you want to read the whole blog post, that's on jmlilly.net. In terms of Jonathan's other web presence, you can find him on Twitter at jmlily, Lily with two L's, which you know from the episode title, of course. A big thanks to Jonathan Lily again for appearing on the podcast, and I really appreciated this conversation. I really appreciated the time that we had together and Jonathan's willingness to dig into this and his willingness to share his own personal practice, because really, this is personal stuff. It's It's not everyone is able to you know, share their own kind of mental tools and their own mental process with people around them so freely and so intelligently and articulately. So I think really Jonathan's doing a great service for the community, a great service for, for anyone who's curious about this stuff. Right. Okay. Just a tiny bit of podcast housekeeping, and then we'll jump right into it. Then we'll get into it. I'm at Dan Jones Ocean on Twitter, and for updates on the podcast, you can also follow at, at ClimateSciPod on Twitter. I am going to release these a little bit more frequently while we're in this pandemic-type situation. At least I will do my best to release them more frequently. Uh, I'm not going to wait a whole month for part two. Part two, I'm going to wait a week at most, so these will be separated by by only one week. That's my plan. That's my intention. I have a few others in the can, so to speak. I have a few others recorded, and I will be releasing those. Um, I might do them every other week. I might do them weekly. Let me see how many interviews I can get together, and I'll make a decision. But 
I do seem to be in a position where I can release these more frequently than once a month, certainly uh, right now, certainly over the month of April. So that is my plan. Thanks very much for downloading, streaming, however you are listening to this. If you are so inclined, uh, ratings, reviews, and feedback, all of those things do help the podcast. They help me kind of figure out the direction. They figure out, they help me figure out what you all want to hear, what the audience is interested in. So I do appreciate that. I listen to that. So please do keep all that coming in. So again, part one, this episode, meditation. Part two is a more traditional climate scientist's episode with Jonathan's science and his pathway into the field. We did record remotely, of course, in this uh, pandemic, in this social distancing time, as you might expect. So it does sound like a Zoom call, but I think it came out okay. So enjoy this chat with oceanographer and artist in a scientist body, Jonathan Lilly. Here we go. Uh, sunny over there today sunny yeah, it's a beautiful beautiful sunny day it's like literally t-shirt weather outside it's uh it's it's outstanding fantastic yeah have you been able to get outside a little bit and well i have a balcony here uh you know during the quarantine um no not much is happening outside but uh, i've been going out on my balcony and stretching out there um i haven't really been you know going out for walks or anything much um i'm trying to be particularly cautious because um, although I'm a healthy guy, I have asthma, which doesn't bother me that much, but it's one of those things that, you know, you read these reports of healthy young person in their 20 and then they, they succumb to coronavirus. So, um, so I'm definitely trying to err on the safe side, but I have plenty of, you know, plenty of fresh air and like I've got plenty of room to exercise and, and um, engage with my work. So I'm, it's actually not really that different from regular life. Yeah, that's my wife and my son as well. They both have asthma, so we're trying to oh. be especially, you know, cautious about that. So, um, we, yeah, I, I try not to go out. Uh, I have gone to the grocery store a couple of times to get, you know, food and supplies and things. But um, we've been able to do delivery for, uh, to, like, delivery groceries for a lot of it, which is helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we're we're settling into to lockdown life. It's it's working okay. There's uh there's some occasional wobbles here and there, but it's nothing we can't uh, work work our way through. Um, yeah, well, it's a great time to be a scientist. I mean, this is, um, I think, especially because, you know, the way our funding works, we're a lot better off than most people for this moment. That's true. We do have a big, uh, that is a privilege, right, that our work allows us to, to work from home, you know, especially because we're, you and I anyway, are not lab-based scientists. You know, we're free to continue our data processing and data analysis as childcare allows anyway. That's not always, that's not always possible if you've got uh, kids, kids roaming around. I saw a nice quote today that I liked and um, I'll have to go back and see who said it. It was just a, a thing on, on Twitter where um, <clears throat> someone said, well, we're not, we're not working from home. We are home during a crisis and trying to do some work when we can, like, which I thought was a nice shift of, of perspective of uh you know, it's important to take care of yourself and take care of your family. And sure, sure. Yeah, that should be the, f- the first priority as much as it, it can be. Yeah. Uh, some people are having to go out and, and work and they are having to go out and continue. And, right. Um, yeah, and we're, we're 
I'm really thankful to obviously, you know, everybody who's had to go out and who have, who like all these essential people who are carrying on their jobs. And it's been a, it's been really interesting. It's revealed a lot of, uh, you know, some of the jobs that maybe didn't get that much respect before this uh, are getting a lot more attention that they, that they deserve. And they're getting a lot more uh, credit for, Oh yeah, you're, you're putting yourselves out there. You know, you're, you, you know, delivery workers you know people who are especially like healthcare workers these people who are going out into the fray and exposing themselves to the the virus um so that they we can keep society functioning at least at that basic level of goods getting around and material getting around that's um it's really impressive and it's kind of you know filled me with a lot of of gratitude that uh or it's highlighted that gratitude i should say um but uh yeah have you had like endless zoom meetings to kind of or um you know i've i've worked really hard to um maximize my my freedom in in my work life so i'm not a part of any committees or anything like this mm-hmm. uh i've turned those down when when they arrive um so mm-hmm. you know i skype with collaborators but that's the same as always uh, the one place that is different is that um, in my free time, I, I uh, my um, extracurricular activity of choice is dance. And in the dance community, uh, after a little little bit of everybody being kind of very jostled, then now there's all these dance events online. So there's like Zoom dance improvisation things um that are happening all the time so so that's that's actually super fun like i'm teaching a class a couple times three times a week and i've got people from london serbia like people i don't even know and it's actually really cool to see that happening to see how a community can spring up and and fill a void when it's necessary to um so yeah that's been my zoom experience over the past few weeks yeah, yours has been a lot more uh, joyful and animated than than many people's uh, is the the vibe I'm getting. We did do we had a nice uh, virtual pub night for a colleague's birthday last night, and that was all right. That was good. You know, everybody nice. had whatever they wanted to drink, whether it was beer or cider or chocolate milk, and you know, we just sat around and, and chatted and goofed off with the virtual backgrounds for a few hours, and that was great. Oh, that's that that sounds like a blast. Actually, sounds really fun. <laughs> yeah. So the uh, the, the uh, it's interesting that the dance so the dance uh, you said they were improvised dance how does that work I guess you've got like a big grid of people participating and yeah yeah so there's gallery view the the kind of dance I do is uh, improvised dance um, and uh, normally it's done with a partner when you're in contact but so so and that that community people really like. You know, people go to it also because of the social aspect and the human connection aspect. So there's a lot of kind of grief around the inability to connect with people personally. Um, but there's also a whole body of uh, solo exercises, both technical material and also um, like uh, emotional or expressive improvisation technique. Like that's a whole field. And so, so. Either people are kind of walking you through, okay, how to do this move or step or whatever, or they're walking you through exercises to imagine something. Or uh, in a class I had last week, I had people um, 
I said, okay, we're going to do duets. So just pick somebody in the grid and, you know, you're going to dance with them. They're not going to know it, but, you know, you're going to have the feeling that you're interacting with them. And so, so yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's manageable. It's maybe, maybe uh, <laughs> suboptimal, but it's still, you know, still pretty engaging. You have to do something, right? I mean, we, you, you have to take advantage of like the tools you have available to you and yeah. see what you can do to work. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's, uh, yeah, everybody's grid is different, right? The individual positioning can be different than the, you know, where. Um, what I read, and of course I haven't verified this, but what I read is that the only person who's different is you and that you are, I can't remember if you're first or second after the mm. host. But then I think that after that, everybody's seeing the same, although I haven't actually checked that with people. Okay, yeah. Because if you could make it the same, then you really could coordinate something between yeah. the little boxes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, ha- we haven't tried that, but it's a good, uh, it's a good idea, yeah. Yeah, well, somebody mentioned doing a Brady Bunch style, you know, introduction kind of... We did that actually. We, we, we did that actually. Well, I had, I just, because we had a grid and I had people, you know, kind of just like whatever, look at each other and wave at each other. And then I put the Brady Bunch music over it and I uploaded it to Facebook and I thought it was hilarious. But of course, Facebook right away is like, no, 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 that's copyrighted music. So I was really bummed. Anyway. Oh, really? Just from, yeah. Uh, is, yeah. Is that from a personal post? They won't let you post? Copy? Yeah. Well, maybe if it was private, I could have, but, mm. but, uh, and, you know, and that's funny because, you know, there's younger people also in the class and they have no idea. They're like, what's this music about? It's kind of cool. Is this, yeah. yeah, is a lot of the dancing to music. Is that pretty typical for it? Or um, the the in the contact improvisation that I normally do, no, it's silent and most of the time. But and that's because interacting with another person has so much texture and subtlety to it. But when you're alone, then then the music really helps. Yeah, hmm. a lot of a lot of times when you're doing solo improvisation or even ensemble improvisation, it's to music because the music provides a like a substrate for, you know, whatever, a lot of imagination or a, or a, or, or a background. Um, so, so in this case, like a lot of people are just doing online dance parties where, you know, you play music and everybody jumps around and get some exercise. You feel like you're in a group. So yeah. Yeah. It's pretty funny. Yeah, um, and then this stuff would I mean you know a month ago like how many people were doing this basically zero and nowadays it's like all the rage so yeah absolutely yeah we're, we're uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens when things start to go back to uh, whatever the post virus normal is you know whatever, right. and on whatever time scale that, that happens on yeah 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 it'll be interesting to see if we kind of keep up some of these things maybe we've actually found them to be alright and you know you kind of I mean, you know, we'll eventually want to be physically near other people <laughs> again. Right, it's right. It's not going to let go away. It'll be interesting right. how we supplement that with the, uh, maybe we found that online stuff can be, be better than we thought it could be. Yeah, yeah, it's it's cool. You know, one thing that I'm finding is things get easier week by week. And for example, just a small thing like, I started introducing hand signals. So there's, there's yes and no, and there's also, I understand and I don't understand. Mm. And, 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 you know, just having that much already makes it so much easier to stay in tune with a group of people who you can't hear because they're all muted Um, anyway. And so, so I can see that the feeling of connectedness is increasing as we practice it. 
Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you wouldn't have had that investment if you didn't have a reason. So, so yeah, I think that there's going to be, in many ways, um, there's going to be fundamental shifts of people thinking after this, yeah, that's not so bad. Or on the flip side, you know, maybe we don't actually need to shake hands anymore. I mean, who knows? That could be gone. I'm really curious to see which, you know, what's, what's going to shake out. Yeah, I'd, I'd be okay with getting rid of uh, handshakes. That's fine. We can do fist bumps, elbow bumps. Okay, so, nice. Nice, nice. Um, yeah, so uh, thanks again for doing this. Uh, I'm really happy to have you here on my laptop screen and, uh, and to hear you. And uh, I'm really happy to, I'm, I'm excited to have this conversation because uh, it's, it's a subject that there's, a, there's so much we could talk about and there's a lot of different di- dimensions to this and many directions we could go down. Um, maybe to ground it, I mean, you and I talked about this offline a little bit, but maybe to kind of ground the conversation, uh, maybe I can tell you <clears throat> uh, what my experience was like. So you hosted this um, at the American Geophysical Union the ocean sciences meeting back in February, which by the way, was only about a month ago, even though that feels oh like, my distant... God. wow, <laughs> that feels like a distant universe, just some other, some other plane of existence. We, we just slid onto the door with that one, you know, just yeah. barely. That's right. Yeah. So um, yourself and Steve Griffey's, you hosted this meditation for scientists session and uh, I attended that along with a few other Bass people, and I thought it was brilliant. I thought it was really uh, amazing because you offered us the the community, you know, something that was so different from what we normally experience. And when I say different, I mean it was it was completely a shift away from okay, let's listen to somebody share their scientific expertise and what they've done. In a way, it was more personal. You were kind of grounding it and saying well, here's how I navigate, here's a big part of anyway, how I navigate my life, you know, as a scientist. Um, here's how I deal with uncertainty and here's how I deal with all of those very real challenges that so many of us you know, face. Um, you shared a lot about your kind of day-to-day practice. You did, you know, couch all of that in a, in a practical way. You said, here's this set of tools that can help you. So you, you mentioned, you gave us some resources you uh, mentioned that Henry Stommel, you know, had kind of um, indicated that that he may have done a kind of meditative thing, although he didn't call it meditation. Um, but you know, the the famous oceanographer that uh, all of our community will have at least heard heard his name, and uh, <clears throat> and then you led us through like a practice meditation session. I don't know why I called it a practice meditation session. It was a real meditation session, you know, um, and. Uh, you, you just gave us some very basic instructions, you know, it was, uh, and then everyone got silent, everyone, you know, calmed down into the moment and it, it felt like people were, were doing it. And I, I certainly felt like I was doing it. Um, and I thought you, like you gave us some very good instructions. So um, I, I'd wanted to kind of hear your, hear you describe like, how did you end up um, in that position on that stage, giving that particular practice meditation session, you know, what's the pathway that took you to that location in time? Oh, well, that's a long story. It's good. We glad we have some time. It depends on how far back you want me to go. Um, So maybe I'll just start with saying that uh, just to go, to go way back, even as far as 
when I was in graduate school, I was thinking about the big picture about what, what do we do when we do science? And I started reading, um, you know, looking around for surely some, you know, esteemed scientist that's going to have written down, this is my process. I approach it like this. I have this point of view. I train my mind in these ways. These are the skills, whatever. Here are some techniques. And, you know, what I found was almost complete zero. Um, that little scrap of a quote by Henry Stommel, uh, it's, in the, uh, it's in that three-volume set that, that uh, Woods Hole put out. He says something like, you know, I'm working on a problem, and I, I, I try to look at it from all these different points of view, and I try to break it up into little pieces. And, and then I get to a point where everything seems kind of clogged, and I can't go any further. And then I do a really curious thing. I try to defocus my mind and let all that I've been working on kind of disintegrate and become blurry. And then after that, something new crystallizes. And then he says, you know, I honestly can't explain it any better than that. It's kind of mystical. So, so you know, as a, as a you know, young scientist, as a student looking for help and reading something like that, I think, well, okay, like that's not super, you know, practical for me to use. And, and I did some other reading and, and found basically, you know, nothing. Einstein had a few, maybe a few paragraphs where he talks about having, um, like, like sensing things on an intuitive level first. But in general, I was just really shocked with how little there was about the larger picture of what it's like internally when we do science. So there's more we could say, I could say about that later, but maybe I'll skip ahead to, to the actual meditation. So about whatever, uh, maybe, maybe seven years ago I went through, it was going through a real difficult period in my life. I was kind of at that stage around 40 years old. Um, you know, I had had some success in getting grants, so that whole thing was working. But then of course, as we all know, you get grants, then you have obligations. It's, it's, it's stressful, and I was also, I was also um, uh, at that time I was involved in the martial arts, and I had been um, co-running a dojo uh, with my ex-wife, where I was teaching Aikido, training in Aikido for many years, and. Uh, Aikido is a, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's a, it's a martial art and it's, um, you know, it's marketed as the art of peace, a way to reconcile the world is, is a phrase that you might hear. And in fact, people often feel when they're practicing, they, they, uh, relate to it as, as if it's their spiritual practice. And then, you know, the teachers will sometimes, you know, kind of, um, you know, put it out there that, that you're doing something that's about like kind of cleansing yourself spiritually or making yourself more peaceful or whatever. And I had been training and teaching for many years and I was thinking, you know, um, I don't really think this is working in the way that it's supposed to be working because I don't feel that my stress level is going down. In fact, I feel that my stress level is going up. And I had a, a, a like at that time, um, a, like a bunch of, um, you know, um, how do how to how to summarize? Um, you know, there were some like some things in my fa- things that happened in my family that were that were traumatic and whatever, and I was left feeling very jumbled. 
and was going through divorce. And I just started feeling like, you know, there's something really missing in my, in my toolbox. And I felt really convinced that, that and, and actually this took me a long time to figure out. I thought, it's not me. Like, it's not that I got the tools and I'm not applying them correctly. It's that, no, I didn't actually get the tools. Hmm. So, so, so that by itself was a, very, was a first realization because that made me look. And if I never realized that, then you don't look. And this is why many people, I think they never look because they maybe think it's their fault or they think it's just the way things are. But I was, I was like, I'm sure that there's something better. So I started looking at various things. I was like a little bit curious about Tai Chi. Um, and then a friend of mine that I respect a lot in the dance community said, you got to check out meditation. And he told me the particular kind that he did. And um, I thought, okay, you know, I'm going to check this out. So I had done, years ago, I had done a little bit of, of Zen, which is Japanese style. And that's the style that is most accessible in the martial arts that I was practicing because it's also Japanese. And I'd done that. So I'd sat a little while. I think I maybe even sat a half day retreat. But for some reason, it didn't really, uh, it didn't really click with me. And so I thought, okay, I'll try it again. So I went to what happened to be the local, um, you know, the closest meditation place to, to where I was living. It was literally two blocks away. You know, I'd also checked out on the web and it seemed like the, uh, the teachers were, 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 were very reputable. The main teacher there had spent, uh, she's a Buddhist nun, she had spent 20 years living in Asia in monasteries before it was the thing to do. And it was running a local, um, it's called the Sangha. That's a meditation community in Seattle. And, uh, and so, and so there was an introduction to meditation series. So I went and in the first class, you know, we didn't meditate except for like five minutes at the end. There was just like discussion of like Buddhist theory. And I thought, well, this is kind of goofy. And I went back the next time and we didn't meditate again. It was more lectures. And, and I talked to the teacher. I'm like, Hey, you know, I thought you were going to teach us to, to meditate. And she said, well, you know, you need to know a lot of things before you start that. And I'll teach you to meditate when you, you know, you can join the meditation class after you go through the whole year of lectures. And I thought this is complete nonsense. I was actually quite, quite a bad attitude. I thought this is nonsense. Like I can, I can meditate. I, I've sat Zazen. Hmm. And she said, well, you know, this is the way we do it. I want people to be very strong meditators. So I want them to have a solid foundation in the whole mentality. So I thought, okay, well, I went to a few more classes. And by the third or fourth class, I've been kind of sitting in the back, you know, my arms crossed, thinking like how smart I am. And after about three or four classes, I think like, you know what? Actually, the stuff that they're saying here is really good. Like, it's really good. It's, it's some kind of like really resonating with me on like a level of elemental um, truths. Now, we're not talking about like beliefs or dogma or anything. We're talking about how does the mind work? What, what are the things that cause suffering? How do you relate to situations? How does, how does cause and effect work in terms of why you do something later? And so after that, I suddenly something shifted. I started coming early. I sat in front. I sat on the ground like you're supposed to when you're showing respect. Uh, I took the whole class three times, the whole year three times. And, and then I joked with my teacher. I said, you know, I didn't actually want to know all this information. Uh, but I kind of got, I kind of got hoodwinked into 
getting interested in it because, you know, I just wanted to learn how to meditate. And I'm, I'm so glad that I did because never in a million years would I thought I'm going to go study uh, Tibetan Buddhism. But, um, but I, uh, um, anyway, so that's how I got started on, on that whole path. Yeah. And then after uh, I started meditating, then, you know, first it was half hour, then it was an hour. And then I went on my first retreat for three days. I thought this was fantastic. I got to do more. Do you mind if I, if we dig yeah. a little bit? Into yeah, 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 sure, sure. Go ahead. You mentioned how, you know, some of the practices and the, the concepts there resonated with you. And I wanted to dig into that a little bit because I, um, I, I, I can't say that I've formally studied it, but I listen to a lot of podcasts and because a lot of podcasts come out of the West Coast, there's a lot of people talking about meditation. This is not the same thing as studying meditation, right? But you kind of, I feel like by osmosis, I'm, I've encountered some degree of these concepts. And I'd, I'd be really interested to hear you kind of elaborate on some of those ideas. I don't know if you wanted to talk about those a little later in the context of your toolbox. You know, you mentioned the toolbox um, or... No, we can go, we can go, we can go there now. That's fine. Yeah, yeah Dan. So this one phrase that I've heard that I've been thinking about lately is the idea that, well, meditation is about, and I'm just trying to put a quarter in your jukebox with this uh, quote, and I'll see, see how you react to it, if that's okay. So that meditation is about increasing the distance between stimulus and response. So the stimulus is something happens to you. You know, you, 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 encountered someone you have some kind of uh, a conversation with someone some kind of interaction with someone that maybe it leaves you feeling a bit angry or maybe it leaves you feeling a bit frustrated or maybe a bit sad and that's the stimulus right that's the event that's happening kind of between you and another person and then the response is not necessarily your your initial emotional response but like what do you do with that initial emotional response uh, and I've also heard it expressed as, well, what you're trying to do is you're trying to identify with that part of yourself that is the observer, the thing that is, is observing your emotions, the thing that's observing things happening to you. And if you identify more with a little bit more with that and a little bit less with your, your ego, which I hear people kind of describe the ego as being like in direct contact with some of those, you know, life events, you know, that's, that's the thing that's directly kind of impacted by, I don't know, maybe somebody saying something to you that bothers you or, 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 or encountering a moment of insecurity or a moment of feeling uh, jealous. So the, uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm putting too many quarters in, but what do you think about, maybe we'll just start with that first one. What do you think about that idea of um, it, it's about increasing the distance between stimulus and response? Yeah, that certainly happens. That certainly happens. And it, it happens in stages. The, the increasing distance, um, I think, you know, the way that I often will frame this to someone who is new um, is about getting space from your emotions mm. and getting a perspective on your own reactions. Because we are um, so, like, wrapped up in our stories and in our own um, sensations, perceptions that we don't see the cause and effect that's happening. So, so this separation 
like you mentioned, identifying with the observing part. The what the identifying with the observing part is doing is is creating space, and and it's it's quite uh, it's quite rational. If if you can observe that you're having thoughts, then you're not your thoughts. Mm-hmm. So so you know Descartes was. 180 degrees wrong. I think therefore I am is like the hugest misunderstanding because you can actually see that happening. So you're clearly not that. Hmm. Well, if you're not that, then what are you? And that what are you is, is a subject of investigation, but the, the, the practical benefit of having that space is absolutely enormous. Um, I can tell you, so the first time I did a meditation retreat this was, I think, seven days, and in in that reach, in that reach, in that style, we're we're repeating phrases to ourselves, and so you spend the entire day just like um, basically saying some very general uh, warm wishes to yourself. That's it. It seems like you you think like, what could possibly be the use of that? Okay, that's how I felt for like the first day. And, and what, what happened was, so, so it's like the, the saying the same thing over, over and over again. You're drawing your attention to the same thing over and over again. What that does is all of the stories and all of the, the habitual thought patterns, like we've all had this experience. Like we see something, it makes us think of another person and that reminds us of this, this thing, and then we we get upset because of a chain of of connections in our in our mind in our nervous system. So when when you're returning attention over and over again to to something, and it doesn't really matter what, you return that attention, you break the chain, yes, and then that starts to to loosen. And so I remember very clearly, I having the experience after a few days. When, when I would kind of just get distracted from bringing my attention to those phrases, then you would start to see all the other stuff kind of like float back in. And I, and I was, I had this image of like, if you imagine being like in a very, like maybe you're on a porch outside, there's lots of leaves around, it's very windy and you're sweeping one spot. And so the spot you're sweeping is very clear, but as soon as you stop sweeping and then all the debris uh, comes back to that spot. That was the feeling. And I remember thinking like, that's the crap that I'm normally thinking about. And it was revolting. You think, I can't believe I occupy my mind with such nonsense. Yeah. yeah the, the brain loves to categorize. The brain loves to compare. The brain loves to, to quantify and to construct stories, like you said, and to construct narratives. And Sometimes, in fact, a lot of the times that stuff is really useful and that stuff is really powerful, but it's not the whole story, right? And it's it's also not not always useful. Sometimes that uh, constant churning and that constant categorization and that constant story building that your brain is doing makes you miss uh, life. It makes you miss the story. It makes you miss like the present right now, the things that are happening right this minute, you know, right this instant. And it distracts you from that calm part of yourself. You know, it, it makes it harder for you to identify with the observer, uh, with that more detached uh, 
more in a way more objective i don't quite mean the word objective but in a way more detached uh, yeah the, so yeah your brain's always doing that so i've heard um the process that you describe of as well you have to give your your brain something to play with you give it a toy to to, to that it can amuse itself with that it can distract itself with and that phrase could that could be something like repeating the same phrase over and over again, right? Or it could be, I guess, like focusing on your your breath, thinking about your breath coming in and out of your body. Or it could be something like just thinking about the sensations that you're feeling, you know, right this minute, wherever you are. And that's something you mentioned actually in the session at AGU. You know, you you gave us a bit of that instruction in terms of saying, well, try to try to focus on the sensations that you're feeling, you know, how do your hands feel? How do, what does it feel like to have your feet on the floor? What, what is the kind of temperature of the room feel like? And to kind of keep going, coming back to that. So it's, it's sounds like that, it sounds like that that's where you were kind of headed um, in terms of, so I love that picture you painted of you know, the idea of sweeping the same spot on your balcony over and over again. So, so when you had that realization, that was a big, uh, a moment of kind of unlocking um, part of the process, right? Of like, oh, that's the essential thing. It sounds like you were saying, that's the thing I'm trying to do. I'm trying to keep this spot clear. And that kind of takes an active, not an effort exactly, but it takes some active kind of uh, focus to keep, keep that, that spot clear. And that's kind of what that meditation process can, can look like. Right. So the, the, the um the meditation object so the term that is used is object the object can be a phrase it can be a a, a, a sensation like the breath is often used as an object so the object uh, has the function of of calming the processes that are normally happening and when we when we calm them then we can get a better glimpse of them when they do when they do arise because otherwise we're so enmeshed in it we don't notice so so yeah, when I had that, um, like got, getting that glimpse of what's normally going on was really a feeling of, wow, like there is so much work to do. I mean, I don't know if you've ever had this feeling, you go in your fridge and you're getting something like in the front and then you pull it out and you realize there's all this stuff in the back that's been there since last Thanksgiving and you're like, <laughs> oh no like it's moldy like i have not i didn't even know that was in there yeah. it was a similar kind of feeling of of like on the one hand like at that time you know feeling wow i'm really appreciating this state of clarity and on the other hand thinking oh man i did not know that there was so much to work on yeah. and 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 so it's at the one time a little scary but also very inspiring because if you have that that uh, experience, then it gives you a lot of impetus to want to do more. Yeah, for sure, absolutely. Yeah, so uh, I mean, I can share a little, a little bit of in my personal uh, kind of reflections along these dimensions. You know, I, I guess I'm often finding that um, th th those negative feelings, you know, the, these kind of negative reactions I can have to things, these moments of anger and frustration, if I kind of if, if I do meditate on them, if I do kind of um, try to get at what the root is, you know, it's, it's usually kind of some fear based thing, you know, it's some like, Oh, I, I don't want to be left out. I, I don't want to be discarded. I don't want to be you know excluded. I want to be a part of something. Um, and that whole process of 
that of, of meditating and that whole process of kind of trying to find that calm place has, has made it way easier for me to see those connections than, you know, if you're just in the feelings, in the emotions, if you're like having the panic, then it's really hard to step back from them and to say, okay, well, what's, what's really causing this? You know, where is this impulse really coming from? So I've, I really appreciated that, that capability, that ability to step back and identify with the observer and take a calmer, more you know, rational, make it, make a calmer, more rational assessment of the causal chain. Like you're talking about the causal chain from the things that are happening to me, to my, my uh, you know, immediate kind of emotional reaction. Um, yeah. So that's, that's been, that's been very helpful for me. And, and that's, I'm just mentioning that because it, it, when you said doing the work, that's kind of what it made me think of is, oh, that's, that's some of the work I can do. And that's some of the work that one could conceivably do is try to understand your own reactions to situations and find out, well, what is it that I'm really, what is it that I'm lacking or what is it, where, where is this, you know, if I do get, um, I don't know, like if I do get a lot of anxiety when people when I receive like a bad paper review or a lot of anxiety when I get rejection, like, wh okay, where's it? What's the essential thing that that's coming from? And how do I address that need you know, without, without panicking? Um, yeah. I, I, it's, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to stop you though. I want to keep going, please. No, I mean, you're, you're, this is all super relevant. Um, so just to expand on some of the doors you're opening, uh, the the phrase that my teacher really likes to to use, and by the way, I should say so. Um, the term a dharma practice is what we use when we're kind of engaged in the Buddhist practices. And as I I think I mentioned uh, at the uh, the intro to meditation that you were at, you know, the way I I view what I'm doing is that it's a set of practices. I don't see myself as having a like a religious or religious orientation right. and the word Dharma. So, so the word like Buddhist and Buddhism, those are made up words. They didn't like, that was never a thing until <laughs> Buddhism came in contact with the West. You would have said you're doing Dharma practice and Dharma practice doesn't have an exact translation that I know of, but you could say wisdom practice, like I'm doing wisdom practice. <laughs> and, and so in that way, it's, it's like not, you know, there's um, no, um, there's not necessarily any um, dogma right, attached right. to that, attached it's, to that. So, 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 Dharma practice is the bigger picture that that is um, a a superset encompassing meditative practice, Buddhist meditative practices. So, anyway, so my teacher likes to use the phrase. Um, you know, just keeping yourself company with difficult emotions, just just being with yourself, and I think that's a that's a very powerful phrase and a, a powerful attitude because, you know, if, if you have a a, a young child and the child is upset, you know, all you really have to do with the child is you just have to be there with them and let them know through your stability that whatever they're upset about is not so bad. Um, so, so the being with is kind of step zero because if you're not being with the difficult emotions, then you're inside the difficult emotions and then you yeah. don't have any control. Yeah. Uh, now the whole other thing that you were talking about, you're, you're kind of mentioning like lines of inquiry and analysis 
and and the these are are there, there's a lot of overlap between like Western psychology and and Buddhist practices or not a lot but there's there's a considerable amount of overlap. Um, the 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 kind of inquiry that we get into when we ask questions like well what what is it you know what is the essential thing that is that is triggering me with this that's not you know so much in Buddhist practice, mm-hmm. but it is in the, it is in that overlap region. And you know, it took me a while to understand, like why it wasn't there, and and then I started kind of understanding how different cultures, like things that we take for granted in our culture, might be completely different in another culture. And and the you know it it is said that the historical teacher that is known as the Buddha went to great lengths to minimize what he was talking about so that it was as specific as possible. And so, so anyway, so all of, all of what you're talking about is very congruent, but at the same time, the, the it's, uh, it's tools that we pick up from elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. That, no, that makes sense. And uh, I liked, I just wanted to react to what you said about, uh, being with your emotions and being with your feelings, it, it kind of, it reminds me of some phrases that I've, I've heard and have just picked up here and there from, like I said, too many podcasts. Um, but I, I like, I really like the idea of um, making space for your emotions and letting them be, letting them be there and, and making space for your thoughts as well. You know, letting them exist, letting them come out to letting them have some space in your mind um, but not latching onto them and not not judging them, just kind of saying, "Oh, I, I see you. Oh, hey, there's there's Dan's uh, insecurity again, or hey, there's Dan's anger again. You know, there's Dan's um, and and just acknowledging it and saying, "Okay, I see you," and I, I understand. And and sometimes saying thank you to those feelings because you know uh, something like uh, insecurity or something like fear those feelings can serve a purpose. It's not great when they take over your whole being you, that locks you down and that makes it impossible to, you know, to be okay and to, and to function. But, um, you know, something like fear, it has a job. It's, it's there to keep you safe from danger. Um, and, you know, some of us, our fear response might be turned up pretty high and maybe it reacts to things that it doesn't need to react to um, that, that are maybe not super helpful for it to react to. Um, but just just nodding at those feelings and saying I, I, I see you, I, I kind of it's almost like being the captain captain of a ship to make a really simple analogy. Like I don't know if that's that's stretching it too far, but you know the captain of a ship can listen to all of their officers and listen to all of the data they're getting. They don't have to let any individual officer or any individual piece of data make the decisions. They more like integrate all of that information. But their whole job is to step back and to to be a kind of objective and to make make some space for uh, you know those individual bits of data and officers to to show up um and and then to kind of make decisions and, and live on the basis of all of that but um i i like that idea of the, the the captain analogy sort of works for me anyway because i can imagine that the captain is like an observer and it and it uh, well, it probably helps that I I have a, an archetype in my head of a very calm, stable leader since I um, uh, I grew up in the time when you know Star Trek: The Next Generation was on, and so I have you know many years of you know Jean Luc Picard <laughs> as like this ar- a cultural archetype of like well, there's there's a very sensible 
but stable, but but sensitive and and caring, you know, whole whole person acting in this leadership role. Um, and that, yeah, that, that actually is helpful. But um, so thanks thanks uh, for for um, it's, it's been really fun to go back and forth. I'm not I'm not stopping us. I just wanted to I just wanted to affirm that like this has been great, and I, I'm I'm looking forward to continuing. Great. Yeah, wonderful. No, it's it's really it's really fun for me too. I mean, I love talking about stuff like this, and I think that. Uh, you know, that there should be much, much more of it in, in our scientific culture and in cultural culture in general. Um, I, 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 I'd like to um, keep the ball rolling with what you were talking about. The uh, let's see. So, so, you know, a lot of us carry, carry baggage from whatever the past from maybe traumatic childhood or whatever. And as you said, there can be reactions that maybe don't, don't align with a accurate assessment of the situation as it is currently happening, but rather are rooted in the past or something like this. Um, the word in Dharma for that is conditioning. You say that you're, you're conditioned by your previous experiences. Um, if, if there's a, a reaction and you uh, respond to this by saying like, Oh, I wish I wasn't angry or like, why am I getting angry or whatever with, with frustration or rejection, then that tends to make the whole thing worse. Yes. So, so the, the, with the capability to step back and encompass all of whatever is happening, no matter how extreme it is, and to have space from it, um, there's a lot of of like stability, and I don't quite want to use the word confidence, but um, I can't think of a better one. So there, you 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 get a lot of confidence associated with with being able to know that you're not being perturbed by yourself, mm-hmm. and 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 then to to the whatever inner child who is overreacting, you know, you can just say, you know, you know, thank you. Um, but you know, your services are, are no longer needed right now. You can rest because the, that part of the, that part is really responsible for getting us to where we are. And in some cases, you know, maybe you, if people had rough child childhoods, you know, your survival could have been at stake, or at least it seemed like it was. Yeah. So you, you want to be grateful to, to 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 that what is now an overdeveloped sense of of danger or threat rather than um yeah rather than you know getting angry about it yeah absolutely that those those old programs and those old coping mechanisms um that they they can serve a purpose and maybe like you said at one time they could have been really critical to your survival uh, and, and whether that's like literal survival or just emotional survival in a kind of turbulent, you know, chaotic kind of environment. Um, you know, like sometimes people talk about um, trying to be really funny all the time because that was how they lightened the mood in their house. And that was how they stopped people from fighting was they just were injecting, you know, as, as much laughter into the situation as, as they could. Um, and then that, that impulse, um, well, that, that's maybe not a great example because you know you you could potentially continue to use that later as long as you found a way to use it you know in, in a healthy fashion. 
but I, I wanted to, um, I wanted to hear more about your, your story as well. I, I don't want to cut us off if there's other bits of that you wanted to talk about, but you mentioned the, the meditative, going to the meditation retreat, you kind of right. pathway to the, to the AGU. Page. Right. Let's, let's get, because there's one thread I want to, to, um, to just follow up on about this analogy you're using about the ship. Sure. Please. Yeah. And uh, so I'm having microphone issues. And that is that um, there's just a second. I'm waiting for my microphone to come back. Uh, I can hear you okay. Okay. All right. Well, I won't worry about it. So there's, there's I think, a, a, a really – there's a, a really powerful alignment with this kind of – um, the, the the aesthetic from Dharma practice from meditation about creating distance and the the point of view of of a scientist and especially an observational scientist yes so so you know I I, I am mostly an observational scientist and I see observational scientists and theoreticians as approaching um, their work in in in, in sometimes diametrically opposed ways. And at the risk of overgeneralizing, I would say that, that it's kind of like this. Theoreticians are rooted in their own personal understanding of the equations of motion, of physics, of ideas. Hmm. And, and what they tend to do is they tend to come to conclusions from reasoning based on principles about the way the world is. And when they go to look at observations, they tend to look from the point of view of testing such a hypothesis. Now, you can do observations in this way, but in my experience, when you look at observations, it's really important to not have any preconceptions and to just look at them and to see what it is that you're seeing. And this looking and just seeing and dropping the preconceptions is about being an impartial observer. And in, in my work, I often find in looking at data, if I had come into this with a preconception, I would not have ever seen that thing. Because a lot of the most interesting things that you see are not things that people have thought about or talked about. Uh, so, so that's the way I like to, to work when, I, when, I'm, when I'm looking at data. Um, yeah. Um, I think that's all I wanted to say about that for the moment. Yeah. Um, so you, you're well. You're staying open to possibilities, and you're you're um, <clears throat> staying open to new information, and you're, and you're working from that slightly detached perspective, and you know, waiting to see if uh, if if you if anything jumps out at you, or waiting to see if there's some creative impulse, or you know, it, it's funny to think about that because it's something that. Uh, I guess you can't really will it to happen. You can't really will, you know, inspiration to show up or you can't really will um, some, you can't really will yourself to notice something interesting in, in a data set, right? You have to wait for it almost. <laughs> well, and this is going back to your ship analogy. You know, what are you doing when you're exploring? You're on this ship while you're looking out at the horizon, you're seeing what is there mm -hmm. and, and recording it accurately. And, and so to, to take this even a little further, I would say, as scientists, we value objectivity, right? That's what, what else are we doing in science other than trying to identify a truth 
that is independent of a frame of reference. Well, you know, Dharma has the same um, uh, goal in a, in a way, uh, a, a level of truth that can be established regardless of where you're starting from. So in our work as scientists, I would say, of course, we're objective. We want to be objective with respect to our work. But why not also be objective with respect to yourself? Put yourself and your emotions and your reactions and your preconceptions into the space of things that you're evaluating neutrally. And then you have so much more room to work with. But, but you know, I, um, I, I read a, a – I had an experience of – uh, interacting with a scientist who was really excited about the fact that his work was objective. Mm-hmm. And, and he was like really stuck in this whole objective thing. And he was, he would get very emotional about being objective and, and kind of not being able to relate to other people's points of view at the same time. And I thought this was quite ironic because mm-hmm. like, there's a whole, there's, you know, objective has, you know, you can expand that to the bigger picture and also value it. And and I think we should we should do that. Oh, that's interesting. So they were, they were objective in the sense of they thought they had the most general view of whatever it was they were talking about. Well, objective has a specific definition. It means frame independent. Yeah, yeah. But objective has a larger definition, which is indep- independent of a, of a person's point of view. Mm-hmm. And I just this just thought it was funny that there was kind of a disconnect in that in that particular case. Right. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, you you had. Um, I think we were at the point of your story where you you went to a meditation retreat or you had... Yeah, yeah. So so I, I went to my first retreat, which was like a few days. And then I thought, this is great. I need more. So I went to a longer retreat for a week. And I thought, this is great. I need more. And then I went to a two-week retreat. And then eventually I did a couple of three-week retreats. And after three-week retreats, I thought, okay, that's good enough for now. <laughs> that's pretty long. <laughs> um, so that's three weeks of complete silence, during which time you're... Um, your mind is occupied with a particular task, which means that uh, your normal, all of your normal thinking, all of your normal reaction pathways are being set aside for the entire duration of that time. And we're meditating, you know, it varies, but you could be meditating literally on the cushion for 10 hours a day, you know, <laughs> something like this. You I mean, you wake up in the morning at five o'clock and you might meditate until midnight. So is it the, uh, the the people running it, like the organizers, do they kind of, what do they do in terms of, do they give you any structure for that at all? Or is it, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a little bit of, how does, how does the structure work? Because I guess, I guess what you'd kind of like in that situation is to say, well, somebody else is going to worry about the time for me. I don't need to think about, oh, how long has it been? Or, right. Yeah. Right. That was one of the so things. this is... Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Go oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say that was one of the nice things at the AGU session was we kinda all knew, oh, we don't have to keep track of the time. I'll just speak for myself. Like I was I I knew, okay, I don't need to keep track of the time. I don't need to worry about like, well, when do I need to get out of this to go to the next session? Because uh, you know, Jonathan's gonna hit the the bell or whatever it right. was. And, right. And that, well, that that he's he's got the eye on the clock. So yeah. I I am free to detach from my uh, AGU schedule for, for a little while. And I will yeah. know that it will be there waiting for me when I get back, but I don't have to worry about, you know, the time between now and then. So I guess they provide you some practical kind of, uh, you know, time structure a little bit. Like, uh, right. Yeah. Sure. So, so of course it's, it's, 
you know, going on retreat is, you know, something that you would work up to, of course, you know, at first, when you first start meditating, you know, half hour, an hour a day, even, um, you know, it might seem like, okay, like doing this for a whole week, like, why would you do that? But uh, when, when, or, you know, if a person feels inclined, um, then the retreat can provide just an incredible structure for a really life-changing experience. Um, how, how, the, how it works. So it's different depending on different styles. Um, though the style that we were practicing, like the awareness of breath is part of a, a, um, set of practices that's uh, called samatha meditation or concentration meditation or tranquility meditation. And that kind of meditation, um, how to say you, you, you find yourself in a zone and, uh, in that, in that zone, I, you know, I remember thinking like, I have never, ever been so relaxed. Like you're not asleep, right? You're not, you're not asleep. You're aware, but the mind is just so still. It's like, you know, you see all the ripples on the lake, but if the, if there's no wind, then there's no ripples. And so if you're sitting in this place, if there's no ripples at all, thinking I have never been this restful, awake or asleep, in my entire life, and then you're just kind of cooking in this experience, it starts to let the mind, all whatever these clenched bits, start to really unravel in ways that you know you wouldn't be able to even articulate. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so in that kind of experience, uh, n- there's the, 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 the people who are teaching you are experts. Like experts, and they've done it. They've they're you know they've done it a lot, and so they're giving you pointers because there's a lot to know about. So there's normally talks in the evening, and uh, often there are there are periods like it can be that it's very strict. Like we're meditating at this time, and then you get up, and there's this period of walking, and then you're sitting, and then you're walking, and then you're sitting, you're walking, and then you eat. Sit, walk, sit, walk, chores, sit, walk, sit, walk, eat, Dharma talk, sit, walk, sit, walk, bed, that's it. Mm-hmm. So there are certainly retreats which are like this. And, and it sounds, you know, to describe it, it sounds like, you know, being in prison. But actually, the, 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 the rigidity provides this enormous um, uh, scaffolding for uh, letting everything else relax. So the experience can be you know, extremely liberating. So I've been to things like that. I've also been to a totally different style of meditation retreat where the instructions were extremely simple. And there was, and again, this is somebody who's like very, it's like a very highly regarded tradition. Um, there was a very simple instruction. There was no timing at all. You could sit, you could walk, you could have tea, anything but you just had to follow this very simple instruction. And I thought, okay, this is going to be a piece of cake, seriously. And after about a day, I thought, this is so exhausting. It's so exhausting. So what was the simple instruction? The simple instruction is you have to notice what you're observing. Mm -hmm. 
or whatever is in your mind. And you have to notice your reaction to it. Mm. Are you attracted to it or are you repelled from it or is it neutral? Mm. So you're staying in this place of the detached observer, but you're taking note of how you're relating to things. So for example, like at that retreat, um, you know, you're eating lunch with this, eating soup with a spoon. And normally we're just eating, right? It's easy. You just eat. Well, what is the force that makes you pick up the spoon and put it in your mouth? So when you slow things down like that, then you think there's some like greed that you feel that you want more of it Mm. and you're attracted to it. So, so that's a force that propels our, our, you know, our activity that is happening all the time. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, uh, anyway, you, you really get a lot of time to look at these programs. Run. Yeah. Programs do their thing. Well, you're, yeah. you, you're getting under the hood and you're yeah. seeing all this stuff and you, Oh, I had no idea this was all happening. <laughs> yeah. Or, Oh, I feel bored. What's going on with that? Or, Oh, I feel angry. What's going on with that? I feel. Yeah. Or why did I just say that to that guy? Mm. You know, then you think, Oh, I know why I said that. This led to this, led to this, and then I said this thing. Yeah, and you can spend. Um, I could imagine that getting exhausting. Yeah, because it's uh, it's stuff that normally we just let it run. Normally we just let it go, and you know, we, you might have some introspective moments where you think about that stuff, but um, we normally get quite caught up in the things that the brain likes to do, and the categorizing, and the quantifying, and the uh, you know, putting things into groups and the evaluating yourself and evaluating things. So it's, it's kind of easy to just, to just run with that. Well, I, I kind of, I kind of want to go to one. Yeah. Great. <laughs> it sounds interesting. And um, obviously I won't just start with that, you know, I won't just jump, <laughs> jump into one. And I guess also three, three weeks um, might be a little bit hard to negotiate with the, an eight year old at the moment, but, um, but starting small makes sense. You know, maybe like a weekend would be a good. <laughs> Weekends are great because in a weekend, a weekend is actually the best because if you, if you learn like week to week, you don't get so much of a jump start, and there's plenty. And they people people offer plenty of weekend retreats. They'll walk you through it. By the end, you know you'll 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 have the ropes down, and then daily practice is, is so much easier. Do you mind if I if I shift topics a little? Yeah, bit? sure, sure, sure. Right, step over to the left because I was thinking about, you know, we, we've had a, an excellent conversation about this uh, meditation and the broader Dharma practice that you mentioned. And I'm now kind of imagining, you know, and I, I feel comfortable and I feel good because um, this has been, I haven't explored it in the same way that you have, and, and I'm not claiming to have any kind of equivalent experience at all, but just kind of through osmosis, I'm encountering some of these concepts and trying to take them on, on board as, as I encounter them and trying them on for size. But there's going to be a lot of, I imagine, people listening, a lot of scientists who, you know, maybe they shy away from uh kind of looking into meditation or looking into things like dharma practice i mean like you said it's not a religion it doesn't have like a religious label associated with it 
but it's it's easy to understand why somebody would would hear that and say oh i don't want to get into to like some system of there's like reincarnation and there's like karma and there's all this other kind of um, language that people think of as, as spiritual. It is, it is, you know, some of those concepts are, are spiritual concepts, but I'm sure you know what I'm getting at. You know, there's, there's a lot of language that I imagine you could easily run into while learning about meditation that, that could turn a lot of scientists off that could make them say like, uh, I'm not interested in getting into like a, you know, spiritual, like, you know, super metaphysical where people are talking about, you know, being reborn and kind of having an infinite spirit. And I wonder, you must have encountered people like that, you know, and and I wonder if there's anything that you can kind of, I mean, a lot of what you said has already spoken to this. So, um, but I wonder, what would you say to somebody who kind of in an elevator says like, well, I don't know about all that meditation stuff. Do you have a, do you have something? Yeah, sure. Well, that's a, this is a, first of all, this is a great, uh, great question. Great topic. Very, it's a very interesting topic. Uh, let's, let me step back and try to kind of fill it, fill in some of the details of this picture you're sketching. So, so right now is a very interesting time because we have our Western tradition of scientific thinking and then we have this tradition, which has mostly been held in the East of meditation. Now, these are both, both can rightly say that they're a kind of mental training framework. Mm-hmm. So now they're in contact with each other. Really, for not that long. It was maybe, I don't know, 50 years ago, there was almost no uh, meditation in the, in, in the West at all. And so, so that's new. So there's bound to be some, um, you know, cultural communication issues. Yeah. When you when you look at the way that uh, I, I'm not like an expert in like Buddhist history or whatever, but the broad brush picture is that it kind of has rolled through different countries over thousands of years, and as it rolls through, it kind of picks up the cultural um, trappings hmm. and and the cultural sensibility of that particular country. So if you look at Zen, it's, you know, it really feels Japanese. And if you look at some other, so it's very, very Spartan, for example, austere, you know, if you look at Tibetan Buddhism, it's completely different, very ornate, lots of things painted, whatever. Um, different colors, bells, chanting. Uh, there was chanting in Zen too. But, but you can kind of see how this, this, this has evolved to, to match the sensibility of the people around it. Now, let's go back to what you said about religion or whatever. So like my point of view is like I'm not practicing a religion. That's a little bit of an unusual, you know, un- unusual point of view. You do see certain Buddhist teachers who will, who will, uh, who, are, who are highly respected, who will say like, you know, it's not a religion. It has nothing to do with religion. You'll see plenty of other teachers who say, no, it is a religion. So, so that's a question of the, for which there is room for different interpretations. So, but but well, well, what does religion mean really? Like, if you're talking about the the appearance of like the external appearance, um, you know, in the beginning, Dharma practice was it was very austere. There weren't any temples. There was nothing. 
like that at all. And all, all of that cultural stuff has sort of accumulated over the years. Um, so, so now we're in a situation where it's coming in contact with the West. And well, what, and, and so, you know, down the road, what we will see is an evolution in which the, all of the, of the practices that have been held for two and a half thousand years will, will be in a new package. And that package will be the package that is the most palatable to, to Westerners. But we're not in that situation right now. And so right now there's a lot of really unfortunate, um, like, uh, like just, just based on the cover, scientists would be repelled mm. from that particular book. And, and this is really unfortunate because scientists actually, first of all, as I was saying, if you're a scientist, you already are in alignment with the Dharma practice goals of, of, of objective truth. Um, and, and actually, if you go back to, to the, like, even if you look in the, the original teachings uh, that are said to have come from the Buddha, there's an early story, a sutra, where someone says, like, hey, you know, this one teacher says this, another teacher says this, I don't know who's right, like, what do you suggest? And, and the, the, the teaching is, okay, well, don't take other people's word for things. Don't listen to someone who just says they're a teacher. Don't do something just because it's tradition. Don't do something because it matches your prejudices. What you need to do is you need to practice something yourself, give it a chance, see how it works, and make up your own mind. Well, you know, if that's not science, <laughs> you know, and, and, and so, and that, that's, that's original. So, so we, we can find so much room for, for common agreement, but then what we're going to get, um, what we're going to get tripped up by is number one, the uh, cultural things like, I don't like the bells and I don't like the paintings because that looks just like church that I used to go to as a kid. Right. right. Yeah. Um, and that, that stuff, you know, for me, I feel very fortunate because I spent 20 years in Aikido getting to have a lot of latitude for like very different cultures. Like at first, you know, I was raised Catholic, right? But now I'm doing this martial art where we bow. Well, bowing if you're Catholic means you're you're worshiping. Bowing if you're Japanese means you're paying respect. Hmm. So, so we have this interpretation. Uh, so, if I hadn't, and if I, if I hadn't had that background, I would have never been able to stomach uh, the Tibetan Buddhism at all. Right. Um, yeah, did you have a comment about that, Dan? Uh, uh, a lot of possible ones, and I was trying to decide. Yeah, sure, sure. Direction to sure. To Sure. I really like this point about this visual you painted of, uh, you know, Buddhism kind of rolling into different countries and taking on some of the kind of character um, because, you know, you mentioned some of the, you mentioned this point about, oh, maybe some of the symbols are um, re repellent to somebody who maybe doesn't feel like engaging with what looks like a religion that they remember from their childhood. And even, even something as simple as the language that's used to describe you know, like uh, the, the the language that's used to describe the process. So, what um, you know, things things like I mean, even the word dharma, right? It sounds like okay, get ready, you're going to have to learn a whole bunch of you know Eastern yeah. vocabulary to even right. engage with this. Um, but it, I think there are people now who are doing the work and saying, 
well, how do we translate all this stuff over to where, you know, somebody who grew up in the States or the UK or Canada or wherever can hear this and, and can engage with it? You know, how do we, um, you know, reframe some of these terms? So like the language, I think, can be a huge part of it, can't it? Um, but, but what you need is you need like a brilliant translator. You need a brilliant translator who can listen to uh, you know, different forms of, of the Dharma practice and, and Buddhism and to translate it into the like, kind of local language, right? And, um, and that there, are, there are like people who are good at that. One person that comes to mind for, for me, um, you know, he, he's not everybody's cup of tea, but he's this comedian, Pete Holmes. So in terms of his comedic personality, he's a big goofball. Uh, which I which I, I like that I like goofball comedy I'm I'm down for that, um, but he he's also I think he's really brilliant at articulating some of the things we're talking about in a way that is kind of more palatable to say your average person who grew up in the states certainly for like somebody like me so I'm I'm not I don't I don't consider myself religious anymore but I grew up in this uh, primitive Baptist church you know in the southeast and it's one that my my family's been involved with for a long time. And so the, the, um, so all of that experience kind of informs like what a religion might look like to me. And, um, well, you know, I, I ran it, uh, I ran it into some, at some point in my adult life, I wasn't able to sustain that old religious practice anymore. I couldn't really keep it, keep it going. I couldn't really keep it all up. And so for, for a while I, I let it go and I kind of had pushed it away, even actively, for a time saying, well, I'm not going to be religious. I'm not going to, you know, engage with this stuff. Um, but, you know, eventually the kind of many years later, um, through listening to listening to podcasts, listening to people talk about this idea. Um, I mean, especially this Pete, Pete Holmes guy, he basically was doing a similar project where he was, was religious, was, was Christian and then wasn't, but he kind of looked back on that and said, well, wait, there was some good stuff in there. How do I salvage the wreckage? Or how do I like get the good stuff out of the wreckage? And what was the good stuff? Um, and part of how he did this was like engaging with completely different religious practices like Buddhism. Uh, like, um, I mean, he, he went a bit further into like the metaphysics of it than maybe your average scientist might be comfortable doing. And, and I sort of get that. I'm not, I'm not too worried about, you know, signing up to a particular metaphysical view of the world or not. I'm, I'm much happier. Um, I'm more comfortable anyway, trying to say, well, how do I become this detached observer? How do I maintain that space? How do I feel like I'm using all the information that's coming to me from my emotions and my sensations and my thoughts? How do I integrate all that into something that feels genuine and that really plugs me into being alive and really plugs me into this experience that we're having. <laughs> and, uh, and that's been been a great a great project for me. Um, so I, I went off on a tangent there. I hope that's all right. But um, absolutely, <laughs> yeah. But the, the language point was what got me into that. Right? Was the so so for me this person that I've been listening to their job of translating Buddhist practice into like simple language that 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 um, doesn't really hit up on doesn't really um well it's translated it's translated into something that sounds more palatable to my ears and that's so important to have people like that yeah for sure that's 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 really important it's it's important to have that and it's also important i think to have um like with 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 an attitude 
that appreciates the the reasons why you might be seeing all of these um, differences or these why something might appear with all these trappings. Hmm. You can really uh, gain a lot yourself because because it took me a while to understand this, but if you if you go to a uh, you want to so for example in the Tibetan tradition there are psych there are deep psychological practices that go back like fifteen hundred years or hmm. or, or more and y- and they're they're a hundred percent completely relevant to 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 where you know where we are and what we need and. Uh, you can go and you can, you know, you go to a Tibetan group in your uh, city and there'll be a class on under, on dealing with difficult emotions. Mm. Well, who doesn't need a class on dealing with difficult emotions? Yeah, and it's taught by a monk or a nun with robes. And there might be, you know, a colorful painting, a depiction of the Buddha on the side. So how do you reconcile that? Well, um, you know, it's natural that if people really value something that they're going to want to make works of art that celebrate it. Mm-hmm. So at that, when I realized that I thought, okay, you know, I hadn't thought about it that way, but you know, I can handle the paintings because I could see what well, people just like to express themselves. And in that culture, they like these colorful paintings. So, so that, so that, that part's okay. Yeah. Um, but you could also see all that stuff as being a mark of authenticity. In other words, that's how you know that there's a direct line of transmission of all these great uh, thinkers over millennia building on each other and and handing us down these tools from past generations. Hmm. Now, one thing that can happen, which is a thing to watch out for, is in the in the effort to make Eastern practices generically categorized more palatable to the West, it's possible to throw the baby out with the bathwater and yeah. pare it down so much that you lose uh, the 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 deeper level of of tools that are there, and so that's my impression. Sometimes when I see like whatever, I'm not thinking of anyone in particular, but like so and so has a PhD in psychology. He meditated for whatever time. Now he's studying meditation and he's teaching meditation, and it's completely secular and. T, it's got a TM attached to it, and you can get a certificate or whatever. And and that, you know that's that's you know of course good in the sense that it's making a practice more accessible to more people who might not otherwise. So there's nothing that you you might object to. But on the other hand, um, there's there's so much we can learn if we have an an attitude of receptiveness. And I think humility is not an inappropriate word here, where you can say, okay, like previous generations, you know, they were different. They they um, they related to things differently. They they would talk about there being fairies and sprites and things like this. You can find all that all that stuffs in the sutras. Yeah. And and does that mean that there's not also, um, you know, truth that you can objectively relate? You, you know, you can you can yourself. Um, like establish that what is being said makes sense to you, and yeah. so in in the whole in the whole project, you're never asked to believe 
that's not completely true, but you're, you, you don't have to believe anything that you don't want to believe. Yes. It's all about establishing things for yourself. And so it's kind of take it or leave it. And, and so I think with that attitude, we can really have a generation that's more open to, to being able to get the best of wisdom of the past and not strip away too much in the process. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the idea of being receptive to the paintings that might be in the room where you're taking a class or where you're practicing. Uh, I really like the idea of saying, well, that's there because people like symbols because people like to make symbols because that's, that's meaningful for us. You know, there's, it, it's okay if you don't want to literally, you know, believe in, like you said, uh, fairies, you know, just to pick up that example that you mentioned is okay. If you don't want to literally believe in, you know, the existence of any particular, deity type figure it's okay if you want to treat all of that as these are metaphors you know these are metaphors designed to point towards something that is true on some level it might not be literally true and whether it's literally true or not is kind of not the point even you know the point is this is getting at something deep here this is getting at something deep about about existence and about what it's like to be a per- what it's like to be alive what it's like to have a consciousness <laughs> what it's like to perceive things and to be in it to be in the universe and it's okay to, to just let those things be what they are and you can you can also take the detached observer perspective with with them uh, so i think that's a great point i really like how you articulated it um yeah and, and i also love that idea of you can take or leave whatever you want see what feels right to you um it, it's okay. You can take it on board or don't take it on board. So in that way, we have like this very active role in constructing our own practice. You know, it's not a, it's not something that's just being handed to you. It's not somebody just saying, well, here you go. Here's your, <laughs> here's your, your practice. Here's your, uh, it's, here's your spirituality for lack of uh, a better term that comes to mind at the moment. You, you construct it, you make it uh, by constant testing, by constant evaluation, by constant checking in and testing ideas and saying, what's true? What's, what's robust? You know, what sticks around over time? So I, I love all that. That's so that's, a, that's great stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the, uh, I wanted to make sure that, you know, you had some time to talk about on your pathway, we were talking about how did you get to the stage, you know, at the AGU meditation session, you mentioned um, in the conversation we had previously leading up to this, that um, you started teaching this time series analysis class in Norway and that at those classes you talked about psychological tools for scientists and the, the different, different has, do you want to talk, do you want to spend some time talking about that? And- yeah, sure. Sure. I can do that for sure. I can do that. So as I said, I started getting interested in this, you know, way back when I was a graduate student. And at that time, one of the, um, most useful things I found was a book called the six thinking hats by, uh, um, I guess you'd call, I don't know what you'd call him. He is a, um, uh, his name is Edward de Bono. He's mostly he's found in like, I don't know, maybe business efficiency or something like this, but I actually think he's a, he's a brilliant writer and a really great thinker. So this book, six thinking hats, what, what he proposes is a qualitative categorization of different kinds of thinking suitable to different purposes. 
Now, often we think, oh, well, that guy is smarter than me or whatever. Hmm. And we think about smarts as being something that you measure on a measuring stick in one dimension. And that's, a, that's an enormous mistake. Um, I don't really like the word mistake. That's, that, that point of view is, is extremely limiting, almost crippling. And also will really put you in a box of not understanding how many choices you have uh, to, to, to like, you have a whole toolbox available at all times, no matter what your training is. It's not about being smart or not being smart. Anyway, so six thinking hats, and I'll, I'll just go, go over this with you now because it's probably interesting to people. So you have, um, you have white thinking. White thinking is objective facts and figures. You have yellow thinking. Yellow is wanting to look on the positive side, looking on the bright side of things. You have black. Black is critical or negative, uh, finding problems with something. You have green, which is uh, creative, generative, uh, looking for possibilities and connections. You have red, which is emotional. Red is a really great one because it lets you say something like, uh, well, why don't you want to, what, what, why don't you like this idea that I'm proposing? And you could say, I just have a bad feeling about it. And that's valid because that's this kind of emotional level of qualitative thinking, the red kind of thinking, hunches. Hunches are red. And finally, blue. Blue is the kind of thinking that makes the decision, because blue is the sky, it makes the decision about which kind of thinking is appropriate for the situation. Hmm. So, so, I, so, I, so I, I read this at that time, and I thought, this is fantastic. And, and I used it throughout my, for myself th- throughout my, um, uh, my, my graduate school days and my, my career by, you know, when I would approach a problem, I would say, okay, well, what kind of thinking do I need for the problem in this context? And, and that was really helpful to me in feeling like, um, yeah, just empowered to be efficient. Like an example is, let's say you're cooking, okay? And it happens that you're like, I don't know, um, uh, like it happens that you're holding a paring knife, but you need to cut like, I don't know, like a loaf of bread. Mm-hmm. Well, obviously you're going to let go of the paring knife and you're going to pick up the bread knife and you're going to cut the bread. And you're not going to take the bread knife and you're not going to try to hit a nail in the wall to hang a picture. You're going to pick up a hammer. So obviously, it's the same with our minds and what kind of mindset we want for, for certain problems. And it's different depending on what you're doing. So, so I had that framework. And then over the years, I started adding things to it for myself. I, I read another book, which is very famous in the martial arts uh, circles called The Book of Five Rings by um, a famous Japanese uh, samurai called Miyamoto Musashi, who categorizes his, his system of training in terms of earth or foundation, fire, uh, um, water, air, and, and emptiness. And, and, I, and I kind of adapted that to, um, to what kind of like internal energy I need. So like, for example, fire is like very vigorous, 
So if you need to like get something done and you only have 24 hours because it's due, that's the kind of energy you need. But that kind of energy, if you don't, if you only use that energy, you will never clean your desk and you will never organize yourself. So you can't just get by on that kind of energy. So the energy levels too, I feel like, like um, it's different from the thinking, but again, we're making these kind of categorizations. So I'd had all this material sitting around and I started thinking, you know, I'm going to try to, to, to introduce the students to some of this. And the first thing I think was a six thinking hats and I was super nervous about it. And I was like really hesitating. And then I thought, no, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to do it. And then um, what I found was people like loved it. And uh, then a couple of years after that, then I started introducing meditation too. Yeah. So that became, so when you said they loved it, like people were like you, they were hungry for some tools. They were hungry for some useful like techniques for managing their emotional states, managing, managing their emotional experience of science, which is just as important as our kind of conceptual and thinking uh, experience of science. Um, because you, you need things like that. You need things like that to navigate all the uncertainty and all the rejection and all the insecurities, right? Um, so you, you started putting meditation into that. And um, and at some point, you and Steve Griffiths, you decided to go in together on this AGU session. Had you known Steve Griffiths for a long time before that? Or had you encountered each other much? You know, I, I actually like didn't know Steve well. I, I, we, don't, we don't know each other super well. We had, it, it's kind of a funny interaction. We, I got to know him because he, uh, was handing out flyers for a new journal that he started, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and uh, and he said, "Oh, you should consider submitting." And I looked at it and I said, "Is it AGU?" And he said, "Yes, it is." I said, "Steve, I'm never going to submit to this journal. I don't want to hurt your feelings." And he's like, "Is like, well, well, tell me why not?" And I was like, "Well, because the fonts are just so ugly." <laughs> and 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 he was like, "Okay, would you write that down for me?" And I was like. Well, yeah, sure, sure, I will. And so I was really impressed because he could have like been insulted or whatever, but he was like, "No, no, let's do this." And so this whole thing went up the chain of command because of you know me having this talk with Steve, and eventually changed the fonts in HU. <laughs> so, so then after that, we kind of just started like uh, developing you know mutual appreciation. And I don't even know how I found out that he meditated, but then uh, when when I started thinking I wanted to do this. I just thought he just had such a great demeanor and was um, just so happy that he, that he, that he also wanted to do it with me. And he also felt like, you know, it's really time to introduce something like this. So even though like our, our whole trajectories of how we practice and whatever, like he's been meditating for a lot, lot longer than me, um, you know, in, in, in a very different system. And, uh, but we were, we were both like, uh, just really enthusiastic about it. And honestly, we were floored by how many people came. We're thinking, okay, well, you know, you know, if we have 20 people, that's golden. And it was 200. So. And when everyone, you know, was into it, like did it, when I say they're into it, I just mean, you know, nobody like left, you know, everyone was like, Mm -hmm. let's let's give this a try. (laughs) Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know how it looked from where you were sitting. Uh, you know, a, a bunch of uh, <laughs> a bunch of scientists kind of 
sitting with their eyes closed, you know, quiet and, and breathing. That must have been an interesting perspective. Well, as soon as I rang the bell to to uh, end the meditation, Steve and I looked at each other, and both of us, ha- our eyes were really wide, and we both were like, wow. <laughs> because the, the silence had been so profound. And, you know, I, I later asked my, my meditation teacher, who uh, she teaches um, she teaches in in Seattle regularly, like groups of people, you know, people walking off the street to sign up and she gets them going on meditation. And I asked her, like, you know, does this sound unusual? Like to have like 10 minutes of absolute silence? She's like, yeah, that's that's very unusual. And it was interesting because she hypothesized that that, that um, reflects a... Um, you mentioned something about training, something about yeah, maybe a propensity, I guess, is a word. Like because of our mental orientation, practicing concentration on scientific problems, that it could be that there's some kind of more so than the regular person off the street that there's this uh, um, development that is that is helpful for meditating. Mm. But that was that was really it was really shocking to have 200 people in complete silence for 10 minutes, and we were we were really pleasantly surprised and the questions after it were also just super um uh super intriguing questions yeah yeah and well just from a from an audience member perspective i can tell you a little bit of what was going on uh for me initially i I thought it was really good that you know you and steve i forget who said it exactly but one of you said if you have thoughts like Oh, this is really hard, or I can't do this. Don't worry; that's that can happen. That's normal. Um, I, I, I thought it was really good that you flagged that up as a possibility, and that you—I forget exactly how you expressed it—but you basically, to what I heard or what I took away from it was, um, well, if you have a thought or a feeling, just look at it and don't latch onto it. Just observe it, and I think you used the phrase "set it aside" or "put it aside." You know, you can say. Well, there it is. And then you just kind of put that thought over in, in a little box, you know, by itself. You didn't use exactly that analogy, but that's kind of what came came to my mind. So I spent that time trying to do that. Basically, any thought that came up, I tried not to judge it. And I tried to put it away into over in the corner and into a, into a little place. And um, at some point, uh, there was a lot of music in my head. Some music was, was filling my head. And I basically... Um, didn't judge that either. I just let that be there and I just let that, you know, play and, and exist. Um, and it, uh, I, I don't know, you know, it felt, it felt very calming and it felt very, um, relaxing. And I, I thought about the sensations in the room, but what I thought was so amazing, you know, we had, you had helped us cultivate that calm, peaceful, detached, uh, emotional space. What I thought was so interesting is when everyone applauded at the end, I just felt myself snap right back into conference mode. You know, it was just all right there waiting for us. It was just like, yep, now you're back at <laughs> AGU Ocean Sciences in San Diego. Um, and it, it, that, that applause, I think, is such a, you go to enough conferences and that really gets ingrained in your head is like, okay, time to go to the next thing, time to switch to the, it's like a, a, a point of, of changing over. But I, I just, I wanted to express my gratitude again to, to you and to Steve Griffiths for doing that because I thought it was, really cool really a, a good an amazing thing to do um well thank you so much that's really wonderful to hear dan i'm glad yeah so i, I want to be conscious of your time we've been talking a nice nice long time and i know um 
there's there's a lot we we haven't covered actually but um you know and i i normally have time where i'm kind of talking about that person's science and i'm kind of conscious that we haven't actually talked about your scientific work at all um you know one option would be we could talk a little bit about it now or um we could do this again sometime and have it separate you know science you know i'm happy to keep talking if that's if that's good with you would you can we take a couple minute break and then come back oh yeah absolutely does that sound good I can just uh, pause the recording and then and then when we're ready to go. Yeah, yeah let's, let's just pause it. Um, let me get some tea and things like this, and uh, and we'll come back in just a couple minutes. Great, be right back. Excellent, Dan. Okay, good. Good break. All right. Before we go on to to talking about other other uh, science or other things, I was thinking maybe in case people want to follow up with the meditation, maybe I could just mention some books or resources that I like in case folks want to look that up. Uh, maybe I'll mention just a few of my favorite uh, writers and resources that I think would be most accessible to scientists for anybody who wants to follow up with the meditation and Dharma practice in general. So Chick Nhat Hanh is a Vietnamese, French Vietnamese um, teacher who is an absolutely uh, magnificent writer. He writes very, very, like he's like the the kindest grandfatherly teacher, um, filled with compassion. Really, really wonderful. He's got tons of books. Um, Bante Gunaratana. I actually don't know his nationality offhand, but he's a he's a very compelling writer and very powerful writer. I think that scientists would would really enjoy. He also has a number of books. Um, uh, there's a writer named Buddhadasa who is. It doesn't have as many popular books. You have to look for his stuff. Um, but he's he's on the on the far end of really saying, um, like proposing a radical uh, like house cleaning of getting rid of you know reincarnation, all this stuff, and talking about Dharma practice in a way that I think. Uh, scientists would really relate to. Um, he's a really, really entertaining uh, and very deep, th- deep thinker. Mm. Uh, so that's that's Buddha Dasa. Um, also, I wanted to mention. So um, there's a, a website called Awakening Dharma, which two of my teachers, my meditation teachers, run, and they are they're they're uh, Westerners who are also very regarded meditators. And they, their perspective, I think, is very technical, but also, uh, um, yeah, it's it, it's they're they're doing what you had mentioned earlier about making things more accessible to to um, to Westerners mm-hmm. and kind of bridging that, that gap. So those are just a few things that come to mind as far as resources that are out there for people who might want to get started. But there's also like, so Spirit Rock in California and um, Insight Meditation Society in um, Massachusetts and Cloud Mountain in, in near Seattle. Those are three major retreat centers where if you want to go and do a weekend for an introduction or a longer retreat, those are the three kind of biggest name places that you could check, check out. You know any places in Europe or the UK? Uh, yeah, um, not off the top of my head. Um, there is a place that I know about, but I'll have to um, jog my memory. 
That's fine. The guy, the Gaia House, I think. I think it's called the Gaia House. Okay. Sorry for the slightly abrupt ending there. That did seem to be the most natural place to break this conversation into a part one and a part two. Part two, the next episode, like I mentioned in the intro, is more of a traditional climate scientist episode where we talk about Jonathan's scientific work, his work on Lagrangian pathways, and his software development work. You can find Jonathan's web presence. He has a good website, jmlilly.net. And there you can find his research work, his blog posts, links to things like Twitter. On Twitter, he's uh, at jmlilly. He kind of recently joined that space not not terribly long ago. And uh, yeah, so I hope you enjoyed this conversation. It was really, really valuable for me. Anyway, I'm at Dan Jones Ocean on Twitter, at ClimateSciPod. You can follow that account as well for updates about the podcast. And of course, you can always subscribe, leave reviews, rate the podcast, all that stuff's fine. Send me an email for feedback, whatever you like to do. Um, those, those, that's useful. That's all good stuff, and I appreciate that feedback from you all, from the community. I hope you're doing well. I hope you're able to take care of yourself, and I hope you're able to take care of your loved ones. Keep hanging in there. Take care. Bye-bye.